Native Stories is pleased to introduce you to Romano Cortez, a journalist and owner of Strawberry Jam's music studio. He'll be talking to us about his experience under martial law under Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos and the Marcos's ties to Hawaii. So what is your background culturally and professionally? I am Romano Cortez Jorge. Um, my uh, mother was from Surigao. My father is from Bataan. I've lived in the Philippines all my life. I've traveled the world. I've seen four of the five continents. Um, but I've never worked abroad. I, I've always traveled as a tourist or as a journalist on assignment. I am a journalist. I've been affiliated with the Manila Times, the Rappler, uh, Inquirer, Asian Traveler Magazine, and a few other publications. How long have you been a journalist? Since 2000. Prior to that, I was a fine arts graduate and I was in advertising and web design. Many people don't know much about martial law and the ads of people power. Uh, They think that Marcos, well, when they think of Marcos, they think of shoes. Uh, what are some major events you think everyone should know about the time period between the time Marcos was elected for a second term in 1969 until he was finally overthrown in 1986? Okay, a, a little more background about myself. I'm Generation X. I belong to the last generation of Filipinos with actual experience of martial law. I saw I was just a child. But I experienced the hardship during martial law that there were no goods. There were no, uh, and everyone lived in fear. My eldest brother was accosted by the Philippine Constabulary for nothing at all, simply because it was late. They could arbitrarily arrest you simply because they didn't like you. They suspected you. They Perhaps your hair was too long or they suspected you for a number of reasons. Uh, the writ of habeas corpus was suspended. So, and there was a lot of corruption, of course, with with no checks and balances, no no uh, rule of law. Well, a real rule of law. No, it it, it was very hard. I could st- I can still clearly remember how bad things were. I remember Edsa back then. They would yearly destroy these uh, rotondas and then turn them into intersections and then the next year they would turn them into rotondas again simply because of the kickbacks. Uh, and there were a lot of uh, quote-unquote email defect projects, you know, like the CCP, a lot of... They had a 20-year dictatorship, so yeah, they built a lot of infrastructure, but a lot of it was horrible And a lot of it was an excuse for kickbacks. And even today, we're still paying for it. We're still paying for that debt. And it's great that someone from Hawaii is interviewing me because as a Filipino resident, as someone who actually resides in the country, I am horrified at at the impression that foreigners get from Filipino Americans. I've noted in my travels that Filipino Americans are extremely parochial and regionalistic. Their culture varies from what generation they belong to. The the people who migrated to Hawaii belong to a certain region and a certain time and a certain sector of society. So do the people who migrated to the east coast of the United States and to the west coast of the United States. There's a very remarkable difference in culture in those, in just those three Filipino expatriate communities. You would never see such regionalism here in Manila, but you travel abroad and it's Kapampangan, it's Ilocano, it's, it's ridiculous. And I remember this anecdote way back when on social media, I uh, posted something about a stampede that happened on a Willie Revillame show. And here in the Philippines, people were horrified at the number of people killed. But I distinctly remember my social media friends abroad 
by Philippine American friends were more concerned about the country's public image. They didn't want me to post that because it would destroy the public image. They weren't. There were. Their main concern wasn't social justice, wasn't the innocent skill. They were concerned about having their only source of Filipino entertainment cut short. They didn't want anything to ruin their the broadcasting of AMC or of uh, ABS-CBN back then. So I'm, I'm horrified if, if the main source of opinion, on, on Philippine opinion, will be Philippine expatriates because it's a distortion. As a Filipino resident, it's not the same. I would challenge anyone to come over here and live here because the essence of being Filipino is it's... Inescapability. Okay. The people who are here, you know, we're mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, for our listeners and for just general information, so I'm Hawaiian and Filipino, and my family has roots both in Ilocos and in Mindanao, and I actually went and lived in the Philippines for ten years, and I do speak Tagalog as fluently as I speak Hawaiian. So what? Romano is saying is he's talking about the disparity in opinions that exist between Filipino Americans here in Hawaii and throughout the U.S., as well as uh, Filipinos in the Philippines. And I would just also like to point out that for my own personal experience, that's also an opinion that I pretty much share. Um, There is a huge difference with uh, Filipino culture in Hawaii versus Filipino culture back in the Philippines. And there is a lot of regionalism, uh, particularly among Ilocanos here in Hawaii. And um, do you think that regionalism is one of the reasons why there's a lot of Marcos supporters? Oh, yes, yes. They will. They, it's, it's love your, your, uh, your idol, right or wrong. In the same way, a lot of uh, Bisaya and Mindanao once voted for Duterte simply because he was from there. You know, they, they would ignore the fact that they're, they're uh, dynastic politicians. Or rather, for a lot of people, it's that's that's a big draw of it. It's, it's like a brand name. You know, they, <laughs> it, it's like they're buying a, a, a brand of shampoo. They, all that matters is the last name, even though the, this young person really doesn't share the accomplishments of their fathers or forefathers or even their competency, they will vote for that family. And let's admit it, uh, I've, I've, been, I've observed elections in the Philippines for so many times and a lot of it is corrupt. A lot of the voters are corrupt. They're selling their votes. A lot of people, you go to the provinces and a lot of people complain why this candidate only paid them so much. And that's why when you go to the provinces, the, the roads are chopped up. Some portions are not cemented because those are the areas that didn't vote for the incumbent governor or congressman. Yeah, I actually observed some Philippine elections under Namfril. Um, you vote buying, uh, for those who are not familiar with how elections are run, um, <laughs> Vote buying is very big, even in not just in the provinces, though. Um, the elections I observed in like Tondo, uh, it was pretty bad. Uh, do you think that that is one of the, the dynastic politicians or politicians that come from political dynasties is one of the major reasons why the Philippines has weak institutions, weak democratic institutions? Yeah, uh, definitely. And, you know, these, these dynastic politicians, they're just protecting their businesses, their hacendas, their conglomerates. It, it, it's all about the money, really. They're into construction. They're, that's why they love these, these uh, public works. They're, their cronies are into it. They, they love to get their hands on customs. They, they can import, they can smuggle. You have to understand these people, they're, they're sick. Their values that have been passed on to them by their families are, are warped. They have more money than they could possibly need or even appreciate. And yet they need they needlessly need more. They just and basically they're they're committed to themselves. I mean, 
they have to stay in power or else once they're out of power, somebody will prosecute them. Uh, what are some of the major political families are on a national scale right now? Oh, wow. Uh, of course, there's the Dutertes, the Cayetanos, the Marcoses, the Estradas. I, I could go on. And, and it's mutating because uh, there are new political dynasties, uh, showbiz founded by showbiz personalities, sports personalities like Pacquiao. And it's not just regionalism. There's also sectarianism. A lot of religions vote like a block. Uh, like the Iglesia de Cristo. There are also the Quiboloy. I know he's big in Hawaii too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there's uh, the Ecleos in Surigao. There are a lot of cults that are mainstream, that are part of the political landscape because they deliver block votes. And a lot of them are po- into politics themselves, like the Ecleos. Yeah, and um, even here in Hawaii, some of the political dynasties that's from there in the Philippines are here as well. Like the Osmanias are also here. Um, there was Osmanias, for those who may not know, are actually from Cebu. And they've been running parts of Cebu's government for the last 50 years or more. In your opinion, how did political dynasties first start? Well, they're basically collaborators during the colonial uh, rule. If you notice, in the Philippines, most of the population is still brown, still native. Mm-hmm. Unlike in Mexico, there was a lot, a huge portion of the population are, you know, uh, comes from Spain, mm-hmm. are actually Caucasian, European descent. So they were undermanned. They had to outsource their oppression. These collaborators were rewarded with hacendas, with businesses, and the Americans maintained that. And to protect their businesses, they went into politics. So basically, it's in their blood to collaborate with foreign powers. It, that's how they get favor. That's how they, they prosper in business. Right. Um, just a quick review of history. So the Philippines was under Spain for over 300 years, correct? Yes, and then uh, almost 100 years of American colonial rule. Right. Um, The same year that the Philippines was annexed to the United States as originally a territory was also the same year they took over Hawaii as well. So the U.S. expanded throughout the whole Pacific in one year. And then there was a brief time where the Japanese invaded, right, in World War II. So the Philippines experienced with three types of colonialism in its history, correct? Yes, and I think we're about to enter a new era of colonialism. With uh, We have a Chinese puppet uh, regime with Duterte. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. Because um, <laughs> originally we we're going to talk about martial law, but I think this ties in very much. Uh, what is... We're, we have martial law in Mindanao right now. What are some of the ties between the current president, uh, President Rodrigo Roa Duterte, and the Marcos family? Well, they're allies, and Duterte himself admitted that the Marcos has financed his campaign. election. Mm-hmm. Yes, his campaign. Now, Duterte is the oldest sitting president, so he's just, it's not just about Duterte, he's setting it up for the Marcos. He's uh, publicly proclaimed that he wants. Uh, Marcos Jr. to be his successor. And um, President Duterte's father was a cabinet minister under Marcos, correct? Yes, yes. So their families go back way back, and they were um, supporters of the Marcos family on the father's side. But then there's the mom, President Duterte's mother, and she was pro Corazon Aquino, correct? Yes, yes, true. But uh, the current president doesn't really look towards the mother's side. <laughs> yes. Uh, you had mentioned about um, President Duterte's pro-China sentiments. Where do you think that comes from? Well, it, it's also very personal. Remember that Duterte was denied visa to the United States way back when because of his human rights violations in Davao, the Davao Death Squad. He takes things personally. He Remember, this is a guy who grew up, he's a dynastic politician. He's a mayor's son. 
he grew up with bodyguards, uh, his own private army, wealth. He's used to privilege. So he behaves like a spoiled brat when he's denied. He takes things personally. And, of course, there was the Cambridge Analytica study that people want a tough guy, uh, a patriarchal figure, uh, a strongman image. So the more he cusses, the more he puts down women, the more he makes uh, rape jokes, the more Filipinos love him. Because Filipino culture is in large part rape culture, really. Do you think that comes from Filipino uh, indigenous cultures? Or do you think that's something that was kind of uh, brought in by the centuries of colonialism? Definitely, it's a, it's a Western. The misogyny in the Philippines is a product of colonialism. Because indigenous culture, the babaylan, the woman priestess, holds an equal power and status with the male military leader, which is the Datu. And note that both the Babaylan and the Datu are not hereditary titles. You earn them. They might be strong figures necessary in war to unite people, but they are not hereditary. They are not monarchs. People earn their people's respect. That's how Datus and Babaylans came to be. And when the Spaniards came, they could make deals with the Datus, but the Babaylans, they eliminated as, as witches, as, as heretics. They, they could not uh, stomach the existence of the Babaylans. Definitely the misogyny, that the rape culture that you see, is, is a Spanish and an American influence. You had mentioned about how the rape culture had helped uh, pres- uh, President Duterte. Do you think also that strongman, cadillal type of leadership, the authoritarian leadership, is also what had helped Marcos? Oh, definitely. Yeah, always, always. And it's not just Marcos, as you know. Filipinos have a penchant for going for macho candidates. And even if it's just fake machismo, like, for example, Joseph Estrada, who was just a fake macho guy on screen. He's just an actor. Or Gringo Hanasan, who's a failed coup plotter. He he mounted almost 10 coup d'etats. All of them failed, but he still got elected because, you know, people don't care for authenticity. They just want to, the veneer of machismo, you know? They, they just want that, you know, that tough guy image. How does that play out, though, for uh, female politicians? Oh, a lot of Filipino uh, female politicians are placeholders for their uh, spouses, you know, or they just, they're just they just dynastic politicians themselves. So a lot come up with motherly images, but people actually are just voting for their, for their husbands. You know, they're just placeholders because there's a Philippine law that limits the number of consecutive terms for, for local governments. So in the case of... Um for example, Gloria Macabagal Arroyo, uh, how do you think the that tough guy image played out for her? How did she utilize that? Because she stayed in power for about 11 years. Well, remember that she became president by default because Estrada was deposed. In Edsa too, yes. Yes, and she was she was vice president. So, you know, she there was an election against a movie actor, uh, FPJ, who's also a tough guy. As you know, uh, again, all that fake machismo. But she had the political machinery. And I guess for the thinking class, it was either a movie actor with absolutely no experience or this traditional politician with, with an actual economics background. So I guess that's the failure of the Philippines, not just Filipino culture or Philippine politics, that it can't produce good alternatives to these dynastic politics. We either have no-nothing celebrities or corrupt dynastic politicians, and uh, <laughs> it's really not a good choice. Yeah, when uh, Gloria Macabagoroyo became president after uh, Joseph Erap Estrada was booted out during ETSA 2, didn't she also play around with the idea of she was the Inang Bayan, the the mother of the nation. Yeah, there was, but it really didn't It failed. <laughs> if there's anything about Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, is that she's got a lousy image. Mm. At least nationwide. It seems that she still wins in, in Papanga. I don't know who the hell votes for her there. <laughs> they have to blame. 
In the same way, I blame people in Ilocos for continually elect the Marcoses. I mean, come on, let, let's take responsibility. Who the hell votes for these dynastic politicians in their respective provinces? Mm-hmm. They have to take the blame, really. Everybody blames Imperial Manila, but federalism horrifies me because I see regional politicians. It's even worse. Do you really want the Pacquiao political dynasty dictating family planning in their region, in their in their state, or the Ecleos, or the Duranos, or the Ampatuans? I, that, that horrifies me. So, yeah, it's... It's just an excuse to further entrench and further enrich dynastic politicians, this whole move to federalism. And Manny Pacquiao, since his name was mentioned several times, how is he a political dynasty, for, especially for people who are not too familiar with what's going on right now? Oh yeah, several of his kin are now running for elections in the Sarangani province. Including his wife. Yes. So there you go. The insanity of voting for a sports hero with no competency, no education, no no experience in government, in public service. And then after that, voting for his kin, who also have no competency, no... They don't even have fame. They just have the, his last name. So Filipinos must take the blame for that. I'm I, I'm sick of being of apologists. I'm sick of apologists for the Marcoses, for the Duterte, and I will not be an apologist for the Filipino people. We have to take the blame for this. Going back to Manny Pacquiao for a second, how did he first get into politics? Well, uh, he did run for congressman, but failed initially in his hometown of Sarangani. Then he ran again in General Santos, where he won. And then he climbed up from congressman to senator. He's taken a very, uh, a very right-wing, very religious conservative stance, which is aligned to the fascist Duterte regime. Because what is fascism but conservatism taken to the extreme. I mean, it's no accident that you've got so much misogyny, rape culture, they want to suppress religious freedom, they want to impose biblical laws. It's no accident. And Manny Pacquiao fits right there. You know, uh, fascism, it's basically might makes right. Uh, We're in power, we get to, to do things. It's the belief that in this in strongman rule that you need a macho guy to rule so they feel entitled as long as they're in power they feel that they can do whatever the hell they want you know they they see balance of powers checks and balances accountability transparency as hindrances as weaknesses you know so it's all about that it all ties together I mean, if there's one thing, religion groomed Filipinos to to have blind faith in, in, in a leader, in an authority figure. In some sort of so, messiah. Yes, yes. It's the same appeal, you know, that he's going to make everything, all the problems go away. You just need to have faith, have put trust in one guy. People, there's just a great misunderstanding of what democracy is. People who vote for Duterte and Marcos and all these other and all his allies think it, it's a popularity contest that as long as they're in power, they get to do whatever they want. They don't see it as checks and balances. They don't see it as keeping them honest continuously even when they're in power. That that notion is lost on them. They Again, they, they think it's like voting for their buying their favorite brand of soap. You know, it's it's name brands. It's it's political dynasties. It's famous last names. Let's talk a little bit about martial law right now in Mindanao. Uh, how did that come about? Well, the perfect pretext was the siege in Marawi. Now, the siege in Marawi was precipitated by Duterte himself. He dared the Maute brothers to to take over Marawi, and they did. Now, the 
military under the Duterte regime claims to have intelligence that they were going to do it, and yet the entire military staff went on a junket unnecessarily with Duterte in Russia. And they were in Russia with Duterte when the Marawi siege happened. The terrorists had months to dig holes, to put in place more than a thousand men and heavy weapons. We're talking about rocket-propelled grenades, heavy machine guns, and other squad weapons. They were able to build tunnels, safe houses. They knew where to hit, what bridges to cut off. And thanks to the United States for all their military assistance during that time. You know, it wasn't China that that helped. It was the United States. Uh, it might be a, an imperialist power, but they were the ones who were there. The Maute brothers, they were tied to Daesh or ISIS, correct? Yes, they swore fealty to uh, ISIL or the Islamic State. Just as the Islamic State was being booted out of Syria and, uh, and Iraq and were metastasizing into your regular global terrorist network. How long has Mindanao been under martial law? Two years now? Yes, I think so, yes. Uh, let me, uh, I guess people can Google it, but yeah, I think two years, yes. And then it was recently renewed for another year because why not, basically? Why not? Because the elections are coming and it's easier to facilitate vote rigging and vote buying under a mar- under martial rule. <laughs> Now, some of the problems with Mindanao besides um, the uh, ISIL, there's also a long-running independence movement among the Bangsamoro, the Muslim peoples, indigenous peoples of the island, correct? Yes. And that's a big mess because really, Muslim Filipinos are heavily integrated. You you will see them in Taguig, you will see them as far as Baguio in the Cordilleras, and most of Mindanao is no longer Muslim. It's, it's mostly Christian settlers or Bisaya, as my uh, Tausuk friends call them. And the, the so-called Bank Samoro is, is a fairly new concept, really, because the Muslims themselves have been at odds with each other. You can just see how from the MNLF, there was a breakaway, it became, it became the MILF, and from the MILF, there was a breakaway. They, we have got several groups now, including the Usayaf. So as soon as you cut a peace deal with one, suspiciously, a new breakaway group forms that's not under the peace deal. And even the indigenous people have been, the non-Muslim indigenous people, a lot of them have been oppressed by the bigger Muslim groups. Traditionally, the other, you know, the non-Muslim indigenous groups have been oppressed by by the Moros. That's why a lot of the militias of the government are actually composed of non-Muslim indigenous people because they're afraid of Moro domination. So it's it's a big mess. It's it's a very complex issue, and if anything, the ARMM, the Autonomous Muslim Region of Mindanao was was a failure. It was incredibly corrupt. Again, it's a showcase of how bad federalism the Philippines will be if you give each people, each region free reign. The problems with Mindanao, what are, besides the Bangsamoro issue, why are there constantly problems in Mindanao? Is it because they're being overly exploited or do you think it's because of corruption or do you think underdevelopment or are there other factors? Well, this is just my personal experience. Mm-hmm. Guys in Mindanao brag about their guns the way guys in Manila brag about their cars. It's really macho culture there. I mean, especially if you go to the to the hinterlands, you know, the farming communities there. Again, it's a, it's a very complex issue. There are indigenous people, there are loggers, there are land grabbers from Visayas and, and Luzon, there are foreigners, there are people radicalizing the Muslim community there and, and elsewhere. 
it's, it's a very complex issue. I'm not from Mindanao, but all I can say is that that's my personal experience. Extremely toxic macho culture. It's even worse in Mindanao because they think it's the Wild West. You know, they it's, it's just a mess. How does the Communist Party of the Philippines play into the current events in the Philippines? Well, really, they are trying to stay relevant. But their ideology isn't anymore. They're discredited. They're the longest-running failure in the world. I mean, it's the longest-running insurgency, and yet they haven't won. A lot of their original leaders are in retirement. They're run by a guy who lives in exile in Europe. Their protests, they still denounce the United States when the main problem is Chinese imperialism, which they fail to address. They do good. But really, their adherence to armed struggle is really a liability. Because as long as they cling to armed struggle, it will be used against not only them, but it will be used to stigmatize and demonize people who aren't even affiliated with them. It's red-baiting. People, you know, the government can just simply claim you're a communist rebel, plant arms, and put you in jail, or worse. So really, they're a liability to other people. And they really destroyed their credibility by siding with Duterte. They were allies with Duterte and his, and the Marcoses and the Cayetanos and the Estradas and the Arroyos. They were one big happy family during the elections. So really, they have no credibility. Their cadres, their activists were being murdered and they stayed silent. Duterte was mouthing rape jokes. And their feminists stayed silent, all because they were counting on positions in in the Duterte government. For me, they've lost credibility, and they are losing their relevance real fast. The Communist Party of the Philippines also sort of endorsed Duterte at one time, didn't they? Yes, I I, I just said that. They were allies. But how how long have they been allies? Well, they were allies until all their candidates for government were rejected by the, you know, and and the the peace deal was put off. Yeah. Uh, When Duterte was mayor of Davao, they were one of his uh, major supporters, weren't they? Uh, They would invite him over to their camps in the mountains and he would uh, allegedly free hostages. Yeah, because it, it, it's good for Duterte. He gets to show off how that he, he freed the hostages, he brings peace, and for the, for the new people's army, the communist rebels, they get free reign. They get to extort. They get uh, from people and local politicians. It, it's money. It, it's very dangerous because the, the communist rebels can intimidate. They, they are the biggest private army. I mean, they can influence elections in undemocratic ways. For the Communist Party of the Philippines, uh, they had actually started right before martial law. And do you think that they were a factor in overthrowing the Marcos regime? Actually, that that was one of their biggest mistakes. Mm -hmm. Marcos, it's the other way around. First of all, Marcos was the biggest boon to the communists. They were just a handful, less than a... They were just around a hundred, I think, before Marcos came to power. Once he started martial law, and his abuses gave them grievances, recruited them hundreds of people. Marcos was the best thing that happened ever happened to the communist uh, movement. I was there at EDSA. I remember clearly they chose not to participate in the snap elections against Marcos. It was a miscalculation. They excluded themselves. They could have been part of the opposition against Marcos. But no, they didn't want to be involved with traditional politicians and political dynasties. They wanted to have it their way through, through armed struggle. So they lost out. The people power revolt happened without them. It simply happened without them. What do you remember about EDSA, the events of... It was amazing. Remember that there was nothing like it. We, we didn't know if it would work. I was just a grade school kid, and yet my parents took me to EDSA. I remember the nuns giving us 
and our neighbors giving us uh, pandesal, you know, a bread filled with uh, sardines and grated cheese and wetting our handkerchiefs with water so in case they throw tear gas, we had some, some protection over our mouths. There was tension, but there was a lot of, it was festive. And it's amazing because there was nothing like it before that. So we didn't know what would happen. Would, would they shoot at us? Would we win? Would we lose? And yet, for some reason, my parents were confident enough to take the entire family to Edsa. We were there. We, we also resided near Channel, Channel 2, which was then Channel 4. And so we saw firsthand the fighting between uh, Marcos Loyalists and the Reformed Armed Forces Movement. So, yeah. Great. Um, the Reformed Armed Forces Movement was the people such as, at the time, um, Ramos and General Ramos and Gringo Hanasan and other people. They had hauled themselves up at Camp Aguinaldo and Camp Crame, correct? And then yes. Cardinal Sin and other Catholic leaders called for the faithful to flock to Etza, which is a major um, freeway in the middle of Manila to protect the people who were in the camp. Is that pretty much how it happened? Yes, yes. Uh, yes, I remember clearly we were mobilized on radio, Radio Veritas and, and other radio stations, Radio Bandido. You know, it, it was a festive atmosphere. People came there with rosaries, with, uh, with, with statues of the Virgin Mary and, and Santo Nino. Was it true that people, uh, especially nuns, were passing out uh, flowers to soldiers? Oh, yeah. Uh, the, some of the women, the girls passing out flowers to the soldiers were my next-door neighbors. Oh, wow. That's true. That's all true. That all happened. And I guess we were naive then because we didn't know. We were only later found out that the reform the armed forces was nothing more than a failed junta, a failed power grab, a failed coup d'etat. They wanted to establish their own junta, not, not establish Cori. They, they begged Cori to, to rescue them. You know, if, if it weren't for Cori and Cardinal Sin, and really Gringo and Ramos, these failed coup plotters would be dead. If we people hadn't gone onto the street and put our bodies between Marcos's military and them holed up in their camps. They would be dead. We rescued them. And yet, they prance around like we, the Philippines, owes them a favor. After ETSA, Corazon Aquino was president of the Philippines. Uh, what are some of your memories of the Aquino years? Well, I was just about to enter college that time. And I remember my political uh, education was fast-tracked by all these activists, older activists who taught me how, what it was because I was pretty naive. And they told me, look, she has good intentions. She has the best intentions. She did, Cory Aquino. But at the end of the day, she was a product of a political dynasty that owned several hacendas. So her instinct was to return the government to what it was before Marcos, which was dominated by political dynasties and oligarchs and asideros. But due to the Menjola massacre, she did push very hard for the agrarian reform, which was good. However, she should have known better and she should have really pushed for the law enacting against the anti-political dynasty law. Because although it was, it was there in the Constitution, there has never been a law to implement that constitutional provision forbidding political dynasties. Do you remember all the coup attempts, though, that happened during oh, the Kino years? I, I remember because we, I, I still lived in my mother's house and I was still in, in school and we would put out the chairs in the lawn to watch the helicopters fire missiles at the Camelot Hotel and the ABS-CBN broadcast tower, which you could clearly see it from our house, you know. And we couldn't get out of the house anyway. We were blockaded by all these military units. We couldn't do anything much. We could just, we would just spectate, you know. Mm -hmm. And this kept on happening, you know, because 
there were so many coup attempts. Some Filipino scholars, such as Dr. Ray Leto, uh, claimed that the 1896 National Revolution against Spain uh, was an unfinished revolution. And in that way, the 1986 revolution against Marcos was also an unfinished revolution. Would you agree that uh, that Edsa was largely unfinished? I, I totally agree. In fact, I wouldn't call the Edsa revolution a revolution. It was a revolt. Revolt. A revolution would mean a change in the system, in the system of government. Mm-hmm. We didn't see any heads roll. We didn't see the destruction of the oligarchy. None of that. We we just saw the reinstatement of the pre-Marcos oligarchy. And the Marcoses were never brought into some sort of truth tribunal. Yes, yes. Let me be clear. The non-violent people power movement was great. It was great. <laughs> I was part of it. But again, it was unfinished business. We People were so relieved that just wanted to get back you know, to peace and order, just were so relieved that there were so many defectors that we didn't think of prosecuting these defectors, of, of getting back their, their ill-gotten wealth. People were just happy that the Marcoses had fled, but really, people didn't realize that for as long as they had their billions, they would always constitute a danger to Philippine democracy. Even today, they have billions to buy presidents, they can buy politicians, they can buy celebrity endorsers, they can buy voters. For as long as they keep their plunder, they will continue to be a threat to Philippine democracy. And now they're allies with other plundering political dynasties like the Arroyos, like the Dutertes, like the Estradas. Imagine that combined wealth. That is a clear and present danger to Philippine democracy. They can buy anyone. They can buy the su- Supreme Court judges. That's a huge amount of wealth. You can put them in jail, but as long as they keep their wealth, they will always be a danger to Philippine democracy. How much wealth, what is the estimated wealth that the Marcoses had plundered? Whoa, uh, I don't have it at the top of my head. You, can, you guys can Google it. The, the United States and, and other fact-finding bodies have good figures there in the billions. Mm-hmm. Right. The Ninth Circuit Court here in Honolulu estimated that the Marcoses had ill-begotten wealth in about $3.5 billion U.S. dollars in 1991. Does that figure sound about, about right? Yeah, well, that's the ones that they know about. Yeah, the ones that they know about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remember that they they also owned a lot of stocks uh, under other people's name under the uh, cronies' names. Yeah. Yes, yes, the cronies' name from Lusutan to what have you, you know. And then they lived here from 1986 to 1992. Yeah, you know, you can quote me this: any civilized people like the French would see to some finality in their revolution, and you know, they would see it through. But there's a certain amount of barbarity in allowing plunderers and murderers to live comfortably among you. That's that's some kind of crazy. That is some kind of crazy. <laughs> or like in the case of uh, Joseph Edap Estrada, who was ousted, convicted of plunder, then somehow pardoned, and then now he's mayor of Manila. Yes. Uh, again, the... People in Manila have to take responsibility for their actions. That's some kind of stupidity. <laughs> I mean, he hardly ever lived in Manila. Mm-hmm. He's always lived in San Juan. So I, I refuse to be an apologist for Filipinos here and abroad. I mean, the elections, the corruption, the murders speak for themselves. The, the, the treason. These are people who voted for traitors and keep on applauding traitors. There's, that's kind of that's some kind of crazy. <laughs> well, the Marcos family denies that they plundered, of course, and they also deny that there were camps filled with political dissidents, and they deny that torture, rape, and salvaging occurred during uh, Ferdinand Marcos's term. How do you respond to that? That other denial. 
from the Marcos family well, that you know. Nothing. I really don't care about their denial. That's to be expected. They're they're liars. In the same way that it's part of their family values, their work family values. They can't help but plunder. They they're already rich, but they have to keep on plundering, and they also have to keep on lying. They also have to see themselves as in power. That it's the only way to go. That that's their work family values. It, they they see that they have to be the, to be there to you know that they can only they can rule. It's to be expected that they'll deny it. What matters is the evidence. We're talking about facts. Uh, we're talking about testimonies, affidavits, evidence, physical evidence of paper trails. We're talking about uh, court rulings. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I really can't trust the justice system in the Philippines because it's already been bought. But the justice system in Switzerland, in the United States, I give some credence to that. And Marcos was recently buried in the Hero Cemetery in Manila. How do you feel about that? Well, of course it's a travesty. And I'm even more disappointed in the, in the people who thought that was acceptable. Because I know so many people who voted for Duterte... Even though they knew that Duterte promised to bury Marcos in the Cemetery of Heroes during the campaign, even admitted being financed by the Marcos political dynasty during the campaign, he even promised to emulate Hitler and kill 3 million Filipinos. And they knowingly voted for that. Oh, yeah. uh, and then there was the rape jokes about the Australian... Um, uh, missionary, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to remember that what is happening here in the Philippines is on the scale of what happened in Spain under Franco or under or what happened in Italy under Mussolini or what happened in in uh, Germany under Hitler. These are these are crimes against humanity and. There, there needs to be a truth commission. There needs to be an equivalent of a Nuremberg trial. These people must be shamed. People must know their shame. It's been acceptable. It's been mainstream to, to laugh at rape jokes, to, to condemn your neighbors to death. And that's, that's disgusting. And we're seeing the worst in the Filipino being brought out by these people. Why do you think that... Um, you had mentioned that you have friends who had voted for Duterte. Uh, I also have friends who <laughs> voted for Duterte. Uh, why did your friends vote for him? Despite everything. They wanted, they wanted quote-unquote change. They wanted someone who could shake things up. Who would make a difference. Who would be the usual traditional politician. Who would be, play nice actually change things. And the sad thing is that, you know, the journalists did their job. The journalists reported that, yes, he was a political, he, he came from a political dynasty. He was a man. He wasn't a man of the poor, despite all the memes and the images and the, the photo opportunities. He was not a man of the poor. Journalists reported on all those ghost employees in, in Davao City, uh, which he got his ill-gotten wealth. No, I mean, journalists did their job. It's just that they were effective on social media discrediting mainstream uh, news organizations. People would rather believe uh, bloggers and trolls than than CNN or or Inquirer or Rappler. That's the sad thing. It was very effective. I remember during the campaign. Um... <laughs> There was just a ton of things coming out about Duterte from Facebook. Facebook had allowed all of these fake news sites to create ads and whatnot that specifically targeted Filipinos. And all of it was false. Um, They mentioned about, yeah, this image of Duterte being a crime fighter that he was a lawyer, even though he never won a case. Um, 
that he was a man of the people. He was poor. He just liked to eat in canteens and whatnot. Do you think that Facebook bears a responsibility to Duterte's regime? Oh, yes, very much. They they gave uh, personal data to uh, Cambridge Analytica, which crafted Duterte's uh, strategy. Uh, they allowed fake news. They allowed people, trolls, to bully other people. So many people were bullied into silence online. The fact that they don't want to recognize themselves as a media company because Facebook is the biggest media company in the world. People get their news from Facebook, through links on Facebook, through shares. But they don't want to take responsibility for that content, so they refuse to be called a media company. And they take no responsibility for that. They, they actually love fake news. They love sensational news because it drives engagement. They love hate messages because that drives engagement. People are more engaged. People are are, are angry. They are, are you know, thoughtful people, reflective people, and, and, and skeptical people are not as engaged as fanatics. So Facebook was a definite contributor to the current destabilization of the Philippines because of their fake news. Oh yes, I even got to interview, as a journalist, I got to interview Nick Gabunada who claims to have run Duterte's online campaign. And, mm. you know, they, they were in denial that they ever paid anyone or they ever... But, you know, the, in so many words, they said that the gloves were off. You know, if, if they felt threatened, they would do anything and everything against their opponents. And they also took no responsibility in their followers. Now, Duterte has a long-running drug war. And what are your statistics on that? Uh, officially, I think the Philippine government says there's only been like 2,000 or 3,000 that were killed. But your news organization, Rappler, reports it as more than 20,000? Yes, yes. Uh, several uh, rights and journalistic organizations have pegged the number at around 20, 22, 23,000 currently. The point is here. We Let's not quibble about numbers. Mm-hmm. Even just a hundred is a massacre. Mm-hmm. Look, the point is that no other institution has the resources to conduct an ongoing nationwide murder campaign that has killed over 20,000 people. You know, and it's still ongoing. It, it's, it's with impunity. So how could that happen if the police were doing their job if it was somebody else other than the Philippine police that were doing it, how come they can get away with it? How come they're not being caught? How come they're not running out of money? Who else but the police can do that? And Duterte himself has admitted repeatedly that he's behind the extrajudicial killings. That's his campaign promise. Most recently, he, he said that extrajudicial killings would stop if only people would stop drug pushing. So he's admitted that he's behind it because he can stop it anytime. You have to realize that treason, political dynasties, even extrajudicial killings, the only reason they're happening is because of corruption, because of money. It's a money-making scheme. I mean, they don't really want to kill drug pushers. They're disposable, but why Why would they go through all that trouble? Of course, they want to eliminate their competition in the drug trade. They they want to... It, it's, a, it's a money-making scheme because where do you get the funding for these policemen? Where, where do you get the money? It, it's, a, it's a great way of having unaccountable, huge amounts of unaccountable money. Where does the money come from? Where does it flow? Uh, how do you reward these these uh, people conducting these extrajudicial killings. It's, it's a huge money-making scheme. So is treason. I mean, of course they want loans from China because unlike the Japanese or the Americans or the Europeans, the Chinese don't demand transparency and efficiency. They don't care who gets a kickback. So there's a lot of money involved. 
uh, same with political dynasties as I mentioned it, it's, it's a way to protect their businesses and, and reward their cronies and get kickbacks from their cronies so it's all about the money these, are, these people are factual hoarders of wealth so they will get at it some commentators have said that the war on drugs in the Philippines is actually a war on the poor. Would you agree with oh, yeah. that? Yeah, uh, definitely. Because just recently, the the son of the former customs chief was arrested. And unlike most poor people, he was given a drug test. He was out on bail. I mean, if you were poor, if you live, if you were a squatter, you'd be dead. I mean, there have, there have been people who were picked up out of their parents' home and killed without evidence, without, on just hearsay accusation. They planted the gun, they planted some drugs, and that's it. And here you go, you have the, the son of a government official, you know. In fact, a lot of, several drug lords, like Peter Lim, there are photos of them in Malacanang Palace under the Duterte regime. So, with Duterte himself. It's true. It's, true. It's, a, it's a war on the poor. And more than that, it's an excuse. It's a money-making scam. Some have pointed out that how the assassins are getting paid is through intelligence funds that came from the national budget, the Philippine national budget. Do you yeah, think that... that yeah, the intelligence fund increased by more than 10 times under the Duterte regime. And since it's intelligence, it's unaccountable. You really can't. Uh, so, yeah. And you know they're not using it for proper intelligence because a lot of stupid things are happening militarily. Like the Marawi siege happened. <laughs> and <laughs> that, that happened. Yeah. didn't uh, Duterte's administration also name Jollibee? as a destabilizer. Yeah, which is ridiculous. I guess somebody, one of their cronies, wants to get ownership of Jollibee. I can only presume. Uh, I don't know exactly why, but that's kind of ridiculous. They also named several... Dead bishops. Uh, dead bishops, <laughs> retired bishops, and even a non-existent, non-existent bishop as part of the plot. <laughs> it's just tragic. Why should people care about the war on drugs in the Philippines and people here, particularly Filipino-Americans here? I think Filipino-Americans need to take responsibility mm -hmm. because if they're voting as expatriates, then they are probably partly to blame for, the, for, Duterte, for electing Duterte in power. And if they're not, then... Let me go to another core issue. Well, it's not a core issue, but it's, it's, it's an aside. Uh, what is a Filipino? If a Filipino is, is an American citizen, then he's an American. Mm -hmm. Okay? Be a, good Amer be a good American. Know the issues in your country. That, that's where you swore your loyalty to. That's the best way you can help the Philippines is as an American. It's very dangerous to presume to know what's happening in a country that's half a world away. You might have roots in it, you might know the language, you might know the culture, but that's like a New Yorker telling a Californian what to do. It's different. It, it's very important for them to, if they're American citizens, to work as an American citizen. Because that's where you you you've sworn loyalty to. So maybe they can they can uh, insist on uh, the United States holding accountable Duterte. They can insist on sanctions. They can insist on a fact-finding mission. They can depose their own fascist president. Okay, mm -hmm. for starters. Mm -hmm. Even things like pollution. The the biggest threat to the Philippines is climate change. I mean. Admittedly, I don't know what, what kills more Filipinos, climate change or, or extrajudicial killings. The point is it climate change has killed thousands of Filipinos and then is impoverishing and, and threatening thousands of homes. And the second biggest polluter in the world is, is uh, the United States. So the biggest help they can give the Philippines is electing a pro-environment administration 
that isn't anti-science, that, that's the biggest help they can give the Philippines. It's uh, uh, electing uh, national leaders that are pro-human rights. Well, any last thoughts before we close this podcast? Well, I hope you can get rid of Trump so I can see the United States once again. Uh, I wanna, I wanna travel to the United States while I still have a visa, but I vowed not to do it until Trump is in, while Trump is still in power. I'd love to see Hawaii. I've, I've seen New York, Washington, and California, and I'd love to see Hawaii. Uh, I've, I've heard so much good about Hawaii, so yeah, I, I'd love to see it. <laughs> well, thank you for being on this podcast. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening to Native Stories. For those interested, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook under user page name Our Native Stories. And check out our website and subscribe to our email list at www.nativestories.org. Also, stay tuned for our mobile application coming out on Android and Apple stores soon.